Well, you heard the uh, rumbling as we came into the service tonight, and if you were in the service this morning, um, there was quite a bit of rumbling in the service this morning, so I don't know if that means I was on the right track or if that God was trying to get my attention, um, but rumbling, I think, is more appropriate to Revelation, right, uh, to the book of Revelation, so um, if I say something and it rumbles, it, you know, it was, was not planned at all. And against my better judgment, um, tonight if we finish a little early, uh, um, if we finish a little early tonight, um, if you have any questions, maybe, from the study of Revelation um, that I could answer, uh, the only person that can't ask any questions is Roger Blackburn. No questions from Roger. Um, I think Roger knows more about prophecy than all the pastoral staff combined. Um, so no questions, Roger. Okay. If I need a question answered, I'll, I'll go back to Roger. But maybe you have something that's maybe it's been these last, uh, you know, weeks of revelation, something that's been bugging you. Or, um, and if I can't answer it, then um, I'm sure that I can relay the message to Pastor and I'm sure he'll be glad to answer it for you. Um, but maybe something's been bugging you. Maybe you wrote something down. I don't know. Maybe um, um, you've never heard a good answer to something. I don't know. Uh, and again, uh, if we have time at the end... Uh, so I will try to stretch things as long as I can tonight. Um, well, we're in Revelation chapter 22, and this is the end. This is the completion of our study tonight. It concludes Revelation chapter uh, 22. Now, before I start, let me just say something about the photograph. Um, guys in the back, uh, in particularly the man in the sound booth, uh, showed me, he says, now, last week you were talking in Revelation, you said there's not going to be any beach. He's like, well, there's definitely a beach in that picture. Um, true, and I see that. And he said, if you open a door and there's a beach in it, he says, you better be rest assured I'm going to go through that door. Um, but let me just say that I think what's going on in the picture is that John is writing the Revelation from the Isle of Patmos. And the Isle of Patmos was on a beach much like that. It was in a cave, and you know, he's looking at the Revelation as God's answering the Revelation or showing him the revelation, and he's kind of looking through that to see, uh, to see the beach. So that might be the reason behind the picture, but he's like, you need to change that picture because it looks like you're walking through a beach, and he's like, there is no sea, what we said last week from the uh, heavenly Jerusalem, and you're right, you're exactly right. Now, there might be uh, some sand uh, by the river that we'll talk about tonight, maybe, you know. Revelation chapter 22 this continues the description that John has already been given in, in uh, I was about to say Genesis. We'll get to Genesis tonight. In Revelation chapter 21, it continues the description. Last week in 21, we got a really good description of what it was like as Jesus makes all things new. We talked about the new Jerusalem, what it's going to look like, the glory, everything about it. And chapter 22 continues that description of the new Jerusalem that John began in the previous chapter. <laughs> and the focus here is, is more on the things that will enrich and the things that will nourish us, you might say, as God's people living inside the city, inside the new Jerusalem. 
So I'll follow the format just like I followed the last couple of weeks, just kind of go verse by verse down through uh, these notes. Again, these are not my notes. These are uh, Pastor Lemming's notes. Um, and I will be careful not to add to or take away from these notes. You get my drift. The end of Revelation chapter 22, there's a warning if you add to or take away. Uh, I'm going to be careful just to try to convey the message that he has in these notes. Um, and hopefully um, I won't get in trouble for it. So verse 1 of chapter 22, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. So here's your river of life, and, and these are things that are found inside the city. It's a river, it says it's clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. You know, kind of reminiscent to what Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. You know, give me a drink. And, um, uh, you know, Jesus says, I have the living water. Um, it's a picture here um, of this river that flows. It proceeds from the throne of God and the Lamb. It's as if God's people will live at the source of this life-giving stream. Uh, the very presence of God himself where the river starts and where it begins. Have you ever tried to? I've always wondered about where some of these rivers that we have start from, to go back to the very source of where they start. A lot of them, you know, underneath a mountain somewhere and there's a spring that comes and that's the point, the starting of that river. Well, this one here, it starts from the throne of God, it says. Pure water as a constant reminder of the living water of salvation. And, and, you know, the residents here of the city forever quench the spiritual thirst of the residents of the city. Unlike cities that are built on other banks of rivers today that are so often polluted by the rivers. You can't think of any off the top of your head, can you? Like the Ohio River or any other river, you know, all the pollution. But all that stuff, the pollution and contamination is gone. It's clean. It's crystal clear. It's perfect. You could literally just probably just drink it. When I was about 12 or 13 years old, we went on a church camp trip. Um, looking back on it, I would have much liked much, I would have, have enjoyed it much more now in my life than I did when I was a 12 or 13 year old because it felt like it was a survival trip. <laughs> okay, so for two weeks, um, we went, uh, there's a, there's a, park up in upstate New York, actually was into Canada. Um, and I remember uh, all we did, it seemed like, was we canoed over the water, picked up our backpacks, portaged over the next four or five miles, it seemed like, over land, put our canoes back in the water, threw our backpacks in, and we did it again. And we did it all, all day for, for like two weeks straight. I was tired. You know how tired I was? Is... When I, came, <laughs> when I came back, I was a 13-year-old, and, and so my parents would often uh, take me to uh, all-you-can-eat restaurants so they could actually afford to feed me, okay? And so, you know, we would go to places like down here, like the Golden Crowd, that's no longer uh, in operation, and, you know, get the plate, and, you know, I'd go three or four, five, you know, plates, you know, however, you know. When I came back from this trip, my mom put, you know, this big plate of food in front of me. 
and I could only eat like half of the food. I felt so bad. It's like, that's not me as a man. But part of that, to get water, um, the guide who took us, he said, all you need to do is when you're out in the middle of the lake, just put down your canteens, and I did, and you just fill up your canteens in the middle of the lake, and you just drink the water. It was so clear. It was so clean. It was so pure. Of course, that's the same water that you bathed in, too. The same water that other things probably happened in, too. That's why you made sure it was out in the middle of the lake. But it was so clean. It was so, like, like you could just fill up your canteen to just drink the water. I can imagine this river, this pure river of water here flowing from God's throne has got to be clear and crystal. You can probably see all the way through it better than any Caribbean water that you could possibly imagine. So clean and so clear, and it flows from God's throne. Verse 2, it says, in the middle of its street, um, again, street, that boulevard, on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. So here we have the tree of life. The tree of life shows back up. The tree of life was two of the trees, or one of the two trees, that were in the Garden of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. They were both in the Garden of Eden. And here the tree of life, um, it shows back up. And it's interesting, it says that 12, it bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. So you have 12 months, 12 types of fruits. So you had new fruit, it seems, once a month or every month wasn't like today with seasons, you know, uh, you have a season in which the tree, uh, you know, produces fruit and then it's done. Uh, it seems like every month you had something different. Every month you had something different. And how that corresponds to we're living with Jesus forever and ever, a month, you know, there's still some element of time here, but yet we live with Jesus forever and ever and all eternity, but yet there's still some semblance of time because you have a month a month, a month, and the month. Now, in the middle of the street, again, on either side of the river, you're going to find the tree of life. And it says that um, when it talks about the tree, it possibly can mean maybe there's a grove of trees, or at least three. There's no definite article in the Greek text before the phrase tree of life, which would indicate only one specific tree. Um, so there could be several. We don't know really how many. It doesn't necessarily say specifically. Uh, do you think we'll get to eat from the tree of life? Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, and, and the tree of life was or is perpetual. Again, producing a new crop every month rather than by the seasons. But it says the leaves of the tree of life, it seems to have a special purpose, which is the healing of the nations. You know, we'll, we know there won't be any disease or won't be any sickness um, uh, like there are today. No more curse. So the purpose of these leaves can't be for physical healing like we might think today. Um, uh, the word healing is translated from a Greek word that gives us our word therapy. And the root of the word means to serve or to minister. As one prophecy uh, scholar, uh, Walvert, says this, he says, The leaves of the tree promote the enjoyment of life in the new Jerusalem and are not for the correcting of ills which do not exist. 
Because remember, those ills, those sicknesses, death, pain, sorrow, some other things don't exist here. So they can't be to fix those things or they can't be to help you get over those things. So it must serve some other purpose. Promote the enjoyment of life, it says. Um, some people have thought you eat of the tree of life and it's part of your fellowship with God. Um, have offered that as well. Um, and it seems that in the New Jerusalem we'll enjoy eating and, and, and drinking in the same fashion you know, as the resurrected Savior did. Although we won't need it, um, we won't have it need it to do so to live, but nonetheless we'll still have the ability to eat and to drink and to enjoy those things. Um, so again, we're not going to be sitting in eternity, future, sitting on clouds and strumming harps. You know, there's things for us to do. There's jobs for us to do. Uh, God made us for the purpose of work. And work would not be uh, a bad thing um, if it just weren't for the curse of sin that made it a bad thing, that made it difficult, that made it hard. Um, there's enjoyment in doing things. God created us. Back in the Garden of Eden, God created mankind to be able to work in the garden and to keep it and, and, and to manage creation. God had given all these things for him to do to manage it. So that's part of it. But it's the managing part of it that's so hard. It's difficult. I mean, I love to get out uh, and, and go and garden, but it's difficult sometimes. It's hard to get down there, even at my young age, and to pick all the weeds and everything and do all the work. And it's constant work, but I love it. It'd be even more, I'd, I'd be in love with it even more if it didn't, wasn't painful to do it. Um, if I didn't sweat, if I didn't lose my breath, if I didn't heart rate, you know, skyrocket because I need to stop and take a break. I mean, can you imagine doing those types of things and not having um, uh, sin that causes you know, the curse of work and some of those things? So when we think about um, heaven, when we think about eternity, uh, don't have that thinking where we're sitting on clouds, strumming harps, um, praising Jesus for all eternity. Again, not that anything's wrong with that. I think we'll do a lot of praising of Jesus, a lot of praising of Jesus. But we'll also have responsibilities. It says we'll reign with Christ and serve with him. So that talks about actively doing something with him and for him. Verse 4, it says, They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, they need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. You know, of all the wonderful things, of all the wonderful things to see in the heavenly city, none is going to be more precious to the believers than the truth that they will see Christ's face. Not in the picture that's on your wall somewhere, it was an artist rendition of what you think Jesus looks like, you know. I've seen so many of those. They'll actually get to see his face, what he looked like. You imagine that moment when you step into glory and you can see his face, whether it's through the rapture or whether it's through death, to see his face. What does his face look like? What will it look like? You know, Adam and Eve in the garden broke their fellowship with God. And it says they hid themselves from God. Our ability now to view God's glory is limited. But 
our view there will be unhindered. And Scripture doesn't tell us. I was thinking about this today. Scripture doesn't tell us who we're going to see. Are we going to see just Jesus? Are we going to see God the Father? Are we going to see the Holy Spirit? Are we going to see all three? Make your mind hurt tonight. It doesn't tell us. I know we'll see Jesus because the disciples show us Jesus. And the apostles show us Jesus. But I wonder if we'll get to see all parts of the Godhead or just just, just one. I don't know. They have a mark on their foreheads, it says here. It talks about ownership. Um, and it says, uh, emanating from the throne room of God will be his glory. It will light the entire city, making the sun or any other form of light unnecessary. So going back to the beach, if there's no sun, then what's the point of going to the beach, right? So the entire city making the sun or any other form of light unnecessary, it says. It's going to be so bright, just his presence is going to make it bright. Verse 6, it says, Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. So only the people who truly know how these things will turn out in the future and what to expect in eternity are those who have trusted Christ as their Savior. Think about that. You know, we're the only ones, believers in Christ, because of what the Scripture says. We know how it's going to turn out. We know what it's going to be like. But think about, your, think about the mind of an unbeliever. He has no clue. He has no idea. He may have heard of these things, but he's not going to get any enjoyment of these things. God has shown John and through John all of us that these things are faithful and true. These things will happen. You can rest assured God places his authority on these things and saying these things are going to happen this way. And the Lord God has revealed to Christians information about the events that says that must shortly take place. This just mean, doesn't mean they have already occurred. because it's been nearly two millennia from when the time they were first spoken. Uh, as was noted all the way back in Revelation chapter 1, the phrase, things which must shortly take place, does not necessarily mean the events under discussion will be accomplished immediately, but when they do happen, they will happen definitely. It's the idea that it's going to happen. This is the way it's going to happen, and you can be rest assured that it's going to happen. As much as can say, these words are faithful and true. There's no doubt that this is going to transpire, that this is going to happen, is what he's saying. Then verses 7 through verse, the rest of chapter 22 forms what we call the epilogue to the book of Revelation. It's kind of like the ending, the closing, the uh, invitation, the persuasion. Okay, it, it, it's, it's a call a last call, so to speak, to those who still haven't put their faith in Christ, to those who still need to believe. There's still an opportunity. There's still a chance. A last call, so to speak. Look at verse 7. It says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Three times in this chapter, 
Jesus says he is coming quickly. Verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20. Three times. And there are seven blessings. It says blessed to see. There are seven blessings pronounced in this book. Jesus reminds us here and he reminds the reader of the blessing that will be experienced to those who keep the words of this prophecy. Do you realize this book contains more promise of blessing to those who read it than any other book? This book, Revelation, provides more blessing, if you read it, to any other book. And yet oftentimes we just don't read it. But Jesus reminds the reader of the blessing that will be experienced by those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. To keep, it means to hold them fast or to guard them. Okay, To hold fast these words or to guard these words. Uh, all believers should desire to obey the truth, but we, want, we must also be ready to defend against those who would try to pervert, who would try to twist or deny its prophecies. I'll say it's just untrue. It's unbelievers. Oh, that's just untrue. So there's a desire to obey the truth. He who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Okay? But also we must be ready to defend against those who would try to pervert it or deny it or twist its prophecies. Again, that'll be coming later on in the end of the book. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8 says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, See that you, uh, that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book. He says, Worship God. It's hard to imagine how overwhelming this entire process probably was for John. How overwhelming this revelation experience must have been for him. To see all the things that he saw, to write down all the things that he wrote down, just the sheer volume of material, the emotional toll, the, the physical toll it probably lent to, the spiritual toll, and to see all these things overwhelming. fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Again, this is the epilogue. So it's kind of closing up. He's kind of thinking back to the whole revelation, all chapters, one through all the way to the end here. I saw all these things. They were finished, and I didn't know what to do. And I just fell down, he says, and worshiped before the feet of the angel. Of course, the angel says, listen, don't worship me. You worship God. I'm just a servant like you. Um, you don't need to worship me. You need to worship God. The angel rebukes him. God is only, excuse me, John is only to worship God. But just the sheer uh, volume of things that he saw. I mean, you think about some of those things. And he saw those things in details as he's trying to describe those things to us. And he has to use the compare and contrast. It looks like this and sort of like this. And it felt like this and it heard like this. And you know, he's using all those things to describe what he saw. We're just getting a small glimpse of what he saw. We're not getting the full weight of it because we weren't there. Can't imagine what that must have done to him. He fell on his face. Verse 10, it says, And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. It says, Do not seal them. Don't seal them up. 
John was instructed, don't seal the words of the prophecy of this book. Until this time in history, only bits and pieces were known about future events. But now God wants his children to fully understand what to expect. This is in comparison, if you go back to the book of Daniel, Daniel was told to seal his prophecy because there was more to come. And that more to come, by the way, is the book of Revelation. Okay, So now it's all completed is what he's saying. Until this time, only bits and pieces were known. Now, with Revelation, we have a full picture of what God is telling us is going to happen in the future. And God opened the windows of future events so that all interested will know his plan for the ages. Think about this, though. He's opened it up for us. He's given it to us all in his word. Yeah, sometimes it's difficult and hard to understand and You go through a passage like 85 times and you still don't understand it. I get it. I'm there with you, especially some of these prophecy things. But I'm thankful that he's given it to us so that we have a roadmap of sorts and know at least kind of what to expect. What if he didn't give it to us? What if he just left it blank and said, okay, I got everything covered. I'll be back. Just wait on me. Wouldn't really be as fascinating, as interesting, as, as um, I don't know, as, as powerful, as lovely as it is here. I mean, you look at Revelation, you think it's really bad. It's really bad at times. But yet, this is a God who loves us and who's designed this place for us. I mean, specifically for us. He's designed this place where we're to live and we're to rule and reign with him for all eternity. I don't know about you, but I think about, well, what's my job going to be? What am I going to do? You know, like, what does he have planned for me? You know, am I going to like, I don't know, get to like rule a galaxy or something? Or, I mean, I don't know. I mean, or am I going to have, you know, be in charge of the gardens of a certain area or something? I don't know. I'm always thinking, like, I wonder what my job is going to be. Because you know that God has a sense of humor, right? You know he's going to give you a job that maybe, maybe you didn't like in this life, or maybe you did, or maybe you didn't know that you didn't like it. Um, but I always wonder, what type of job is he going to give us? How are we going to serve him? He says, don't seal the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. I'm thankful that he gave us Revelation so we can understand just a little bit about what's going to happen in the future. Verse 11 says this, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. As I read that first phrase, I thought about that Johnny Cash song, right? That's an old song. He was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He's talking about the man who comes around. The man who comes around. When Christ, um, when Christ comes, the emphasis here is that the time for change is gone. It's done. Look at how many times in this text, in verse 11, he says, he was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He was righteous, let him be righteous still. He was holy, let him be holy still. There's a repetition there. Four times, four times, okay? So when Christ comes, the time for change is gone. So what he's saying now, he's saying change while there is time. 
Now it's time. If you haven't been living for Christ, then now's the time to change. If you don't even know Christ as your Savior, then now's the time to change that. Because when he says the unjust and the filthy, he's talking here, will only become more entrenched in their wicked ways. We've already seen this spirit show up in the book of Revelation. Um, Those who experienced the wrath of God, remember they were angered. They knew the wrath of God was coming. They knew they were being punished. And Revelation 16, they shake their fist at God and say, no, we won't accept. We won't accept. We know that you're rendering judgment. This is during the tribulation. We know you're rendering judgment. We know it's you that's doing this. But no, we still won't accept. And then those who are righteous and holy will become more committed to holiness and righteousness. It says, as a result, God will give every man the punishment or reward according to his work. This doesn't mean that heaven is earned by works, but that the degree of punishment for the unrighteous and the reward for the righteous will be determined by their works. So if you look at those words, you know, he's saying filthy. You've got unjust and filthy and righteous and holy. So he's saying, listen, right now, now that you know what it's going to be like in the holy city, if you haven't been serving Christ like you should, if you haven't been um, uh, building up heavenly treasures, you need to start now. You need to start now. You need to start now before he comes because once Jesus comes, it's too late. It's done. You can't go back. You can't buy more time. And just like he says, the, the other two references here, are the unjust and the filthy as well. References to unbelievers. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, now's the time. Now's the time to accept him. Now's the time not to wait any longer. So the reward, he's saying, for the righteous will be determined by their works. The degree of punishment for the unrighteous will also be determined by their works. And then verse 23, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Three titles for Jesus here. And again, John was reminding us that Jesus knows all because he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. And, and, and what is being said here is that I am omniscient. I am all-wise, all-knowing. I know everything. I know it from the beginning all the way to the very end and everything that there is in between. I've got it all. I know it all. That's the kind of God that I want to serve, by the way. What he has begun as the alpha, the beginning and the first, he will bring to pass as the omega, the end and the last. That's a sure word of prophecy. You can be rest assured that it's going to happen the way God says it's going to happen because God is who he says he is. What he finishes He finishes, rather, what he starts. And he's going to see it all the way to completion. You know, by the way, this plan started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. After mankind messed things up with sin, God says, I have a plan to fix what mankind has messed up. Took a long time. Still is, in our concept of time, taking a long time. But he's going to fix that which he messed up in the Garden of Eden. Verse 14, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life 
and may enter through the gates into the city. A final reminder here is given concerning those who will enter the heavenly city and those who will be turned away. Those who are blessed with entrance to the new Jerusalem are ones who keep his commandments. This doesn't mean they have earned their way to heaven, but what characterizes their lives is obedience. That's what characterizes their lives. The scriptures make it clear we cannot be saved by our works, yeah, but faith in Christ normally ought to result in good works. And the word here is just simply a synonym for all believers. It's equivalent to other references in Revelation calling them overcomers, like back in verse 7 of, this, of chapter 21. But outside, so there's a comparison here, inside these, outside these, but outside are dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices the lie. Now, dogs are not the animals, okay? I've been asked before, there's going to be animals in heaven. I don't see why not. They're part of God's creation. They may not be the exact animal that you know and love as fluffy, um, but... I believe that there'll be some kind of animals in heaven. I mean, they're part of God's creation. It's going back to Eden, going back to there. Then part of God's creation will be there. I don't know, but that's just my, my thought. When it says dogs here in the text, though, in the first century, dogs are not the dogs we think of as, as today. You know, the ones we um, domesticate in our houses today. But rather, dogs are ones who roam the streets and forage their refuge to find food. A dog was a figure of those who were derelict in character and conduct. You didn't want to be associated with a dog. Um, and you've got sorcerers here, are those whose drugs, uh, who use drugs in the practice of occult magic. You've got the sexually immoral, which live according to the lust of the flesh. The murderers, of course, those who take the lives of the innocent. Idolaters, those who worship and serve gods of their own making. And then those who habitually lie. Now, all of these are absent from heaven, not because they committed one or all of these sins at some point in their lives, but because they have failed to trust Christ as their Savior, which is evidenced by their continued and habitual practice of these sins. He's saying that these types of things will be in the city. These types of things won't be in the city. Again, making a comparison here uh, in verse 15. Then verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The root and offspring of David, the bright and morning star. The root, you know, he's the preexistent one from David. Offspring, he is one of David's descendants. We're talking about the deity and the humanity of Christ. But he's also called the bright and morning star. You think about the bright and morning star as the sun rises in the east. It indicates the dawning of a new day. So the morning star points to a beginning, a new beginning for mankind. And remember through David, Christ would come and he would rule. It was through David that God promised he will always have a descendant of David to sit on the throne. Of which Christ was one and will be one. Verse 17, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It's kind of a crescendo of voices inviting the lost to salvation. And no one is excluded because whosoever desires may take of the water of life, it says, freely. It doesn't cost anything. 
but it costs Jesus greatly to give himself for us. We celebrated that this morning through the Lord's Supper to remember what Jesus did on our behalf. And then verses 18 and 19, it says, For I testify to anyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life, or the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So the warning here is directed to those who deliberately misrepresent Revelation through adding to or taking away from the book. That's the warning. Um, something like what cultists sometimes do. They purposely add to or take away from the revelation, really from other parts of God's word, uh, to make it suitable to what they want. Um, so when we talk about it here, he's referencing the the, the threat, the danger here that happens when you take from or you add to. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with um, the transmission of our scriptures. This has to do with purposely trying to misrepresent Revelation, taking away or adding from, okay? These are, these are ones we call cultists, or these are ones we call heretics. Um, in the early church, there were a few um, that kind of didn't like the certain portions of the Old Testament, and they liked certain portions of the New Testament, and they kind of merged them together and made their own kind of Bible. Um, that's the kind of people that, that, that are being referenced here. Um, and and uh, throughout church history, there's been a lot of examples of those cultists today, maybe, a lot of examples of those who are purposely trying to distort and We've probably all seen or watched a movie of some kind or something, you know, where you have some kind of cult and they're misrepresenting the scriptures, especially as it talks about Revelation. And they may be misrepresenting things and saying, look, I'm the Messiah, come follow me. You know, obviously that's a really bad <laughs> misrepresentation of what scripture is. So the danger here is, it says, for if I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, this book, if any add to or take away, there are consequences, he says, to this. And then verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly, amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. And so for the third time, Jesus says, he's coming quickly. He's coming quickly, he's coming quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And then the book of Revelation kind of, it ends with just that crescendo, that ending. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Now, if John was saying that 2,000 years ago, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we really need you. It's really, really bad. That's 2,000 years ago with John. And think about today. I wonder what he would be saying today. Paul tells Timothy, you're living in the last days, Timothy. Be careful. That was 2,000 years ago as, as well. Think about what Paul would say if he were here. Oh, man, this is really bad, guys. I don't know what he would say. But even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, that effectively finishes the Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. 
began on June the 13th of 2010. Is that right? <laughs> June the 13th of this year? Of last year, I'm sorry. Well, we haven't, yeah, I'm sorry. We haven't reached that date yet. I'll get it right, of 2021. Now, we have a few minutes left, maybe just 10. Does anybody have anything that maybe that through the study you've had a question about? Um, anything at all? I feel like the more I study Revelation, the more unclear it becomes, right? It doesn't really become as clear sometimes. I feel like you have to stay in it a lot. I feel like um, that, uh, that it's hard, you know, and, and that's just one of the 66 books, right? <laughs> There's 65 other books that, that, that need our attention. Um, but any questions? I mean, I, we'll finish if there's no questions. I don't see anybody wanting to raise their hand and be singled out. So, well, if there's anything we need to do tonight is that um, we're going to take some time and we're just going to take a minute of prayer because I guarantee there are people that we know um, who are not believers in Christ. And I think it's important for us, especially as we come to the end of Revelation, we know what's going to happen. We know we're going to be there participating in it. But if, if these people who are unsaved that we don't know, know Jesus as their Savior, you know, they could die and spend eternity separated from God forever. We know what it's going to be like to spend eternity with God forever. We know the beauty, the glory, all the things with it here. I mean, this is, uh, you know, you can't think of a better gift. This is just it. Why wouldn't we want to take as many people with us as we possibly could?